In studio today, Bird is joined by criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman. In 2017, she was invited to speak before the House of Commons Parliamentary Standing Committee on Justice and Human Rights, providing legal testimony on the changes to cannabis impaired driving laws in light of cannabis legalization. And has since then continued her advisory role with the federal government, submitting frequent briefs pertaining to issues from hate speech to human trafficking. In 2018, she founded her own law firm located in downtown Vancouver with a focus on impaired driving, cannabis regulation, and criminal defense. Along with supporting a number of local nonprofit organizations, she is currently the board chair for Pace Society, which offers low barrier programming and support for Vancouver's marginalized sex workers. We go now to Bert in conversation. Good afternoon and welcome to License to Chill. Today is Friday, December the 6th, and we're coming up on Christmas. So we have a special guest today recognizing the festive season is upon us. Her name is Sarah Lehman. She is a criminal defense lawyer at her own law firm, Sarah Lehman Law Group, based in downtown Vancouver, and you can't get more downtown than where her office is. And she is a criminal lawyer. Uh, she practices law in British Columbia and Alberta, and she focuses on an issue that comes up at this time of year all the time on impaired driving. But now we have added into that mix of impaired driving, because we think of impaired driving, we primarily think of liquor, but now we've got the issue of cannabis. And Sarah, welcome to License to Chill. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, I'm glad you could be here. So help me out here. You focus on this area of law for what reason? Well, it actually just kind of happened by chance. I got, oh, you got my pulled over for drunk driving. <laughs> no, I did not. But I did end up working at a law firm at the beginning of my career that specialized in impaired driving. So I definitely didn't see myself doing this. But um, yeah, it turns out that it's a very interesting, nuanced area of the law. From my perspective, because we've been liquor licensing for 30 years, uh, dealing with a lot of licensed establishments. We're very, a lot of our clients are very much concerned about this because of uh, the liability issue that they have as the owner of a licensed establishment that may have served them a drink that led them to intoxication, that led them to an accident. And it's a very complex field and we, we have a law here in British Columbia, um, only in Canada, and, and I want you to expand on this, that follows the liability right back to whoever served them a drink. Yeah, so that would be a civil issue. So that would be separate from what I would be helping a client with. I'm the person who comes in and helps with the um, person who's dealing with the impaired driving charge itself. So uh, whoever the accused is, is the person that I'm going to be dealing with directly. I haven't actually seen any cases um, in my career so far where uh, the licensed establishment was sued after the fact, but I'm sure it happens, and I know it does happen. I just think that it's a little bit rare. Okay, so for our viewers, our listeners, I should say, let's say you're driving home, uh, whether it be from an office Christmas party or from a pub or a restaurant, drinks with girlfriends, whatever, and you get pulled over by the police. As I understand it, the police can now pull you over without any real reason, correct? That's right. And that's always <laughs> been the way it's been for many, many years now. So they can stop you just to check your sobriety. And when you do that, what rights does a person have? 
Well, they have the right to, of course, not be unlawfully detained, uh, but that's open to interpretation uh, by the courts and the circumstances and so on and so forth. Uh, you do have a right to counsel, but that's later. Lots of people think they have the right to talk to their lawyer right away as soon as they're stopped. That's not the case. Your right to counsel is suspended for at least a few minutes on the roadside. And that's for the purposes of the officer doing some preliminary impairment tests. So blowing into a roadside screening device is one of the things that you may be asked to do. That is now mandatory and the officer doesn't have to have any suspicion that you've even consumed alcohol to ask you to do it. Now, they also make you walk a line to see if you can walk a straight line without bobbing and weaving. <laughs> they might ask a person to do that, and that's if they think that the person is affected or impaired by drugs. Any drug, not just cannabis, but there's a number of other drugs that people might be driving under the influence of. So those types of tests are called standardized field sobriety tests. And there is the walk and turn test, as well as some other ones, uh, like touching your nose, uh, estimating the passage of time, so on and so forth. So uh, that's what we're seeing more frequently being used in BC. Okay, so what happens if you do all those tests and you pass, you're just sent on your way, you feel like you've been humiliated, particularly <laughs> if it's at a busy intersection, a lot of people driving by and seeing you blowing and walking and touching your nose and all that sort of stuff. They know there's an issue, lights are flashing, it's kind of like being on stage. <laughs> what, what happens if you blow over? Let's say you're over the legal limit. Yeah, so if you provide a sample that results in a fail, um, then the officer has discretion. They usually go back to their police vehicle and run some checks on you. And depending on what your history is, so if you're a person who, say, a repeat drinking and driving offender, so to speak, uh, you have other instances appearing on your driving record or maybe a criminal history of impaired driving, then the officer might put you under arrest and take you back to the police station. Uh, but most people, that's not the case, thankfully. And so if they don't have a history of impaired driving, uh, then the officer will usually proceed by way of an administrative charge, which means that everything happens at the roadside and they are released, but their license is usually suspended immediately and the vehicle is also impounded. And the person has to find their way from that location home in a taxi yes. or walk or someone comes and gets them. Yeah, most of the time <clears throat> officers, at least they say that they offer a taxi as an option, but uh, you know, it depends on the circumstances. Okay, so help me out though. The police can pull anyone over for whatever reason they want. And as a driver of a car, you can't ask them why I've been stopped and detained. Well, I mean, you can ask, but the officer's not obliged to provide a response. Uh, and they're certainly not obliged to provide a truthful response. So I wouldn't um, ask the question if it was me. I would just be as polite and cooperative as possible with the officer and comply with whatever they were asking me to do just to make things go smoothly. Okay. Now, do they sometimes fabricate things? to pull you over, a reason to pull you <laughs> over? Because I, the reason I asked that is a friend of mine was pulled over and uh, for a weird reason, and she was okay, but she just thought, this is weird. Why would it be stopped for that? <laughs> well, I mean, certainly it's an uncomfortable truth that police can sometimes embellish evidence. Uh, but that being said, I think it would be a very silly thing for them to 
uh, you know, potentially jeopardize their credibility on because they really don't need to. As I said, I mean, police officers can pull anybody over at any point uh, to check for sobriety and also to check to make sure that they're driving in compliance with their license so that mm-hmm. they're properly licensed. And, you know, some people have restrictions on their license. So officers want to make sure that they are within compliance on those. So in most cases, then the penalty, if you're pulled over, your license is immediately suspended, your car's towed away, you have to go home, and you're going to have to survive for a while without your car. How long is that? 24 hours, 48 hours? Well, it depends on what your result was on the device. So most of the time when I see these types of charges, it's because a person has blown a fail result, which means that their blood alcohol concentration is effectively over 100 milligrams percent. It means that they are impaired or drunk. Um, and if that's the case, then they are looking at a 90-day license suspension and 30 days without their car. Okay. So it's pretty serious. It's a lot of taxis and <laughs> a lot of buses. Definitely. And we don't have Uber. Right. But, but there is an appeal process. So <laughs> a person can yeah. appeal it, and that's usually how they end up coming in contact with me because that's what I do for them. Now, some of these cases, as I understand it, are pretty horrific and have real life-changing consequences for the person involved, uh, where you have a suspension of your license for 90 days, you lose your car, but I also understand some cases the person has had to install on their car a, a device or a gizmo that you have to blow into the device to start your car, and I gather as you're driving the car, every once in a while you have to keep blowing in it <laughs> to prove that you're sober mm-hmm. in order to keep driving. Yep. kind of like an inflatable car. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then some cases during that, and I understand it, that during that, to install that uh, uh, piece of equipment on your car, it takes time to do that, and there's a wait list to do that. Mm-hmm. So your roadside suspension might have been for 90 days, but because of the time delay to get this installed in your car, it could be another couple of months. And then in the meantime, if let's say you lived in North Vancouver, but your job site where you worked was in Richmond, you're probably going to have to move to Richmond uh, and uproot yourself to be close to work. So you're going that period of time without having to take taxis or buses across several bridges and all that sort of stuff. Are you encountering that sort of thing? Well, it used to be much more common that that device, which is called the ignition interlock device, was being ordered for drivers who had, say, one instance of, um, we call it an immediate roadside prohibition. That's what this is called. It's an IRP for shorthand. So that's the administrative charge. Um, So drivers with a first-time offense on an IRP were being asked to do that ignition interlock program in the past. Uh, In more recent history, that's not been my experience. So I find that it's only being ordered in cases where there's, again, a repeat pattern of that type of driving behavior. But that's here in BC. I actually just was on a different program uh, recently with a representative from MAD um, talking about Quebec's new law where they have now decided to pass a mandatory lifetime ignition interlock restriction for people who have been convicted of two criminal impaired driving offenses. So that's something that I was debating with representative of MAD, whether that's appropriate or effective, because as you've pointed out, ignition interlock can have really, really severe consequences for people. And for a lot of people, it's also cost prohibitive. It's really expensive. So people can't afford it and then they can't afford to drive. Maybe they can't work. How much does it cost to put one of these gizmos in? Here in um, British Columbia, it's about $4,000 for Mm -hmm. one year. For one year? Yeah, for one year. And then you have to do it again. 
Well, I mean, here in BC, usually it's just for a one year. year if it's a first-time offense, but it could be longer than that, depending on what a person's driving record looks like. And where is this device located in the car? Is it on the steering wheel or beside it? Or? It's actually, usually, the ones I've seen are kind of free-floating in the vehicle. They might be plugged in to, say, the like lighter or something like that, but it's just like a little box that you have to blow into. So it doesn't cause distracted driving or anything like that? Well, I mean, I think that's arguable. Yeah. Okay, that's it's an interesting one. Um, now, how accurate is the, the, the testing device that the police use? So the device that's used on the roadside is different from the ignition interlock device in some ways. Uh, that device is called the approved screening device. Um, it is a screening device, which is right there in the name. So it's not the most accurate uh, method of uh, testing a person's blood alcohol concentration. It was developed in order to basically weed impaired drivers out for the purposes of taking them back to a police station for more accurate breath testing using uh, an approved instrument, which is a much more scientifically precise and sound instrument. So it's not the most accurate device, and that's usually one of the arguments that my clients may have available to them if we go ahead and dispute the allegations. Okay. Now, dispute the allegation. What they're disputing is the, the penalty. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> a lot of people who probably get caught want to keep this low profile. Right. They don't want to have a lot of publicity around the fact, let's say you're an accountant or a lawyer or you work for a major firm or something like that. You don't want a lot of track, attention attracted to the fact that you've been, had this happen. Mm -hmm. Indeed, we had a premier of British Columbia, Gordon Campbell, in Maui many years ago, who got picked up for impaired driving and spent one night in lockup on Maui. And he did not want to have attention drawn to it, but it came out in the local newspaper, and then the Canadian media found out about it, and he was in trouble. So how visible are these cases? Are they fairly visible? Well, if it's an administrative <coughs> charge, it's usually not all that visible because it's an administrative tribunal hearing. So it's either a written review, so it's just like paper letters being exchanged between yourself or your lawyer and the government, uh, or else it can be an oral review, which happens over the phone. So there's no, say, court docket, court list. It's not really public information. So you're not up here at Robson Street Courthouse or down on Main Street duking it out where the no. media might walk in? No, you're definitely not. And I mean, that has its good and its bad as well, though, because it's a type of review hearing that's been scaled back in many ways from a courtroom proceeding. So you don't have the right to say, for instance, cross-examine the police officer who issued you with that infraction. So there's no ability for you to actually really test their evidence in depth as you would with, say, even a speeding allegation, because you, that officer is still compellable to come to court for an, a minor offense like that. And they do have to take the stand if you want to trial. Uh, but for this, with much more serious ramifications, that's not something that's available. So in my view, that's problematic. Um, might be better for privacy, but it's not quite as good for procedure. Okay. Now, in terms of the, um, the testing, and are there circumstances in your, in your experience and practice where people have been able to successfully challenge the test based on the fact that they're on a prescription drug or they were something, some reason, or that might have caused a false positive or... Oh, for sure. 
Yes. Um, You know, when it comes to prescription drugs and things like that, those defenses can be fairly novel and difficult to make out. But there's all kinds of other things that can affect the reliability of those screening devices and the samples that are obtained. So there's lots of factors to look at. And I mean, often when I talk to my clients who call me with these things, they're just so deflated. It's such an embarrassing process, as you pointed out earlier. People usually don't want to deal with it. um, And they certainly don't want to admit to what happened, you know. Um, But that being said, it's worth it for them to talk to a lawyer because often lawyers can identify things that went wrong um, with the sampling procedure or the paperwork or whatever else there is so that we can hopefully, you know, reduce the pain for that person. Okay. Now let's switch to cannabis. Yeah. (laughs) As I understand it, there's a similar device for cannabis as what Mm -hmm. there is for the uh, alcohol called the dragger. Yeah. That device actually isn't being used in BC, thankfully, because it is, in my opinion, a really, really bad device. I don't think it really tests for much of anything. Okay, so is this another blow in the in the, in the uh, straw type device? No, it's actually not. This one is a saliva sample. So okay. the officer has to collect saliva from the subject's mouth and they use a little wand to do that. It can take upwards of eight minutes on the roadside to get enough saliva on that wand. So that's a bit awkward for people to have maybe an officer poking around in their mouth for eight minutes on the roadside. Not not an ideal scenario for nope. the average citizen. <laughs> Particularly if I, was a, uh, if I was a female, I'd not be comfortable with that scenario at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of female officers around now, but uh, still, I don't think I would want no. really any of them doing no. it. It's invasive for sure. And so the accuracy of that saliva test, it takes longer. Is it Mm -hmm. fairly accurate or not accurate? Or is it all mixed up with a bunch of other stuff going on in your body? Let's face it, today (laughs) our bodies are are a real chemistry set. Between (laughs) prescription drugs, other stuff we take and everything else, is it it an accurate test? Well, the Draeger can test for all kinds of things, not just cannabis or THC. It can test for a whole myriad of different um, substances. But that being said, it's not testing really anything except for the presence of the substance in a person's saliva. Uh, That doesn't even really reflect what's in their bloodstream. Uh, So uh, not only does it reflect what's in their bloodstream, but it also doesn't reflect whether or not the person's actually impaired or affected by whatever the device is picking up. Um, So it's not a measure for impairment. It can't tell us anything about whether or not a person's actually, say, stoned. Um, It's completely useless on that point. All it shows is that it's picking up a particular chemical compound in a person's saliva. It tells us nothing. Other than a chemical compound. Yeah, that's all it says. It says it's there, but it doesn't tell us anything else. So it doesn't work in the same way as the ASD for alcohol because the biology and the chemistry of alcohol in the human body uh, is something that has been studied for you know many, many years. And it's really well established in terms of the science of impairment with particular blood alcohol concentrations. So forensic experts can agree that a person is impaired when they reach about 100 milligrams percent of alcohol in the bloodstream. So that device actually gives us some type of, you know, assurance that if you're providing a sample around 80 to 100 milligrams percent, you are drunk. Uh, The same cannot be said for THC. And forensic experts continuously tell 
people, uh, including all the politicians who drafted these laws, that there's no connection between the level of THC in the body and the level of impairment that a person's experiencing. That's fascinating. Yeah. So what do BC police officers use right now for cannabis if they're not using the dragger thing, Jiggy? They are using the standardized field sobriety tests that we discussed earlier. So Walk the line, touch your nose, yep. uh, uh, talk uh, coherently, and memory <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's no talking <laughs> test, but there's definitely a walk the line. Uh, there's an eye test called the horizontal gaze nystagmus test. Um, What's that? That's the one where they hold out like a pen or another type of object, and they tell you basically to follow it with your eyes. And they're looking for nystagmus at a particular deviation of your eyeball, essentially. This town sounds totally judgmental. <laughs> yeah, well, it's actually the only one that's even rooted in some degree of science. But the science is not good because if you're a person who's had, um, say, a closed head injury in your life, so a concussion, uh, particular eye surgeries, um, other medical conditions like diabetes, that might preclude you from actually being a viable candidate for this test. Um, and there's other things as well, like if the officer doesn't do it right, if they're holding the stimuli, so the pen or whatever it is, too close or too far away, it can affect the reliability of the test. Particularly if you've got eyesight issues. For sure, yeah. There's all kinds of things. So the science is not good, but it's the only one, like I said, that's rooted in really any degree of science. And if I was standing at a busy intersection, let's say West Georgia and Burrard Street, on mm -hmm. a busy afternoon, and the police cars were flights flashing and they're doing this to me, I'd probably be a little bit distracted too from following the pen that's in front of my eyes. Yeah, they're not looking for distraction. Mm. What they're looking for is an involuntary shake to your eyeball at a particular oh. angle. So that's why they're getting you to follow that pen to you know, a degree that's pretty far out without moving your head because they want to see if your eye's going to start twitching and shaking. I think my whole body would be yeah. twitching. <laughs> check. So where's the science going in terms of cannabis, in terms of doing, is there still uh, scientists working there as we're talking here right now, trying to come up with some screening device? <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, it's like a billion dollar industry at this point, right? So I think people are rushing to try to develop the best tool that they possibly can. But I don't think that any scientist is going to be able to overcome you know, the simple biology of the, of the matter, which is that there really is no correlation between the THC concentration in a person's body and their level of impairment. It's just not really there. And it doesn't work for any drug, really, yeah. because it's such an individualized thing. Yeah. In terms of our business, which is primarily liquor licensing and now cannabis license, we're coming up with this issue in terms of uh, host responsibility. And we're not going to get into that too much, but for example, a golf course. Mm -hmm. The licensed surface, playing surface of a golf course is licensed. For years, you may be able to have a beer or a glass of wine or a vodka drink on the golf course while you're playing golf. You can also smoke on a golf course, stogies, cigarettes, whatever. Now you can smoke cannabis on the golf course as well. So at the end of the golf game, you've got people who've been consuming alcohol, whether it be from the kiosk, the, uh, the uh, uh, beverage cart that's rolling around the golf course, the takeout window or from the clubhouse, plus you've got people smoking cannabis. Um, they get into the clubhouse, they have dinner, and then they leave. And when a police officer pulls someone over, well, they can, pr they can test for the alcohol part, but the cannabis part uh, is not testable really except for this 
uh, test you just talked about. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the day, what happens to the person? What's he charged with? Impairment in terms of alcohol or cannabis, or do they define <laughs> it that far? It's a really great question, and this is like one of the things that I think police officers are struggling with when it comes to enforcement, because if a person is impaired by two intoxicating substances, so alcohol and cannabis, there are provisions in the criminal code and um, also sentencing principles that if they're convicted, judges have to follow uh, when they're handing down the appropriate penalty that deal with those kinds of scenarios. But it's hard for officers to investigate both alcohol and a drug at the same time. Um, there's all kinds of charter arguments that a clever defense lawyer can make out if that was to go to trial uh, about you know, the officer's belief, what they were doing, and so on and so forth. So um, I think that does present a really unique situation for police officers who are trying to you know, investigate and enforce our laws. Um, but officers can actually ask for blood and urine samples. So that is compelable if they have the grounds to do so. If they think that the person's failed those roadside tests and that they are, in fact, impaired by a drug, they can make that demand. And so. go back to the police station for a blood test and for a urine test at the police station? Or would they usually, take it to a hospital? Yeah, we usually happen at a hospital, um, but it would depend on the jurisdiction and what resources were available. It wouldn't be a police officer administering the actual like blood test. That's, It'd be a nurse yeah, or something. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Good. Yeah. I don't want Sergeant Joe <laughs> Friday taking blood from me. No. <laughs> um, now, they coming back on it, if you're stopped and the police have got you and they're going to pound your car and you have to find your own way, do they have the right to search your car? to look for things like cannabis or booze within your vehicle, or they just seize your car and tow it away and it's stored in a lot till you can claim it back? Or do they do a search of your car and maybe find some cannabis or perhaps some other stuff in there? Well, sometimes they do. Sometimes they can do, um, well, they can do a visual search for, you know, just kind of putting their flashlight in there or looking in and seeing what's actually just readily apparent or out and visible in the vehicle. And if they see things like, say, empty, you know, alcoholic beverage containers, they'll put that in their police report. Uh, if they see, you know, paraphernalia related to cannabis and things like that, they'll do the same. They might confiscate it. You know, it depends. Um, but they don't have a right to search the vehicle without more grounds or more suspicion in order to do that. And they would typically need to get some kind of a warrant in order to do a very thorough search of a vehicle. Okay, but a person can have under the law up to 30 milligrams of cannabis on their body of possession at any time. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I could sit in a restaurant, pull out my 30 grams, and I could make what I call rollies, but I, you, know, <laughs> you, could, you could have it there in your possession and it's legal. Uh, I could have it in the glove box of my car and just say, that's my cannabis, it's personal possession, but I'm not smoking it. Well, glove box is arguable, actually. Oh, really? Um, yes. If I was giving advice to a person who was transporting cannabis in their vehicle, I would say put it in your trunk. Always. Same advice that everybody gives you when you got uh, liquor. Yes. Uh, particularly if you go home, come home from a restaurant where you, we have now this right to take an unfinished bottle of wine home with you from a restaurant where it's re-sealed uh, and you put it, the, the advice is put in the trunk of the car. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. Because you can get a ticket for transporting cannabis in your vehicle in an unlawful manner. 
So that's important to so, do. So in the lawful manner is in the trunk. Well, it's out of reach of, of the driver. That's right, and it should also be secured. So if you have, say, a like lockbox in your vehicle, like if you have a locked um, glove compartment, you could use that. But I just think trunk is probably the best. Yeah. Okay. Well, for cannabis, it's a lot easier. Bottles you have rolling <laughs> around back there, and every time you stop, you hit it. Okay. I want to switch gears just slightly here a little bit uh, with Sarah. Um, you must be really busy on, you are saying before we got on the air, on Tuesday mornings. Yeah. <laughs> after the weekends. So is it your experience most roadside checks occur on, um, on the weekends? Mm-hmm. And so people call you usually on Tuesday. Are you uh, a lawyer that people can call you at all weird hours and get some advice? <laughs> Unfortunately, I am, yes. I get phone calls at all hours, and particularly from people who are in custody. Um, so I don't just do impaired driving, of course. I do all kinds of criminal law. So, um, you know, I get all kinds of phone calls. <laughs> and that's what it's going to lead to next. What other, what other types of criminal law do you focus on? Everything else, really. The only thing I've never done is murder, <laughs> and that's <laughs> just because it really hasn't come across my desk yet. Um, but I do really anything. You do domestic? I do. And you do uh, any sort of assault matters yes. and things like that? Yes, and I do a lot of sexual assault and those types of um, uh, allegations of a sexual nature as well. I've been seeing a huge increase in those recently. Now, why is that? Now, there's so many reasons we could posit for that. Um, But I do think that one of the major reasons is because we are reducing the social stigma around people coming forward and reporting those types of crimes to police. And police are also now mandated um, with different internal policies and things like that to take these types of allegations much more seriously and to investigate them much more thoroughly. So it's more difficult for police officers to just dismiss uh, allegations of sexual assault today than it would have been, you know, five or ten years ago. So as part of this uh, uh, change in attitude come about as a result of the Me Too I movement? I think so. Yeah, for sure. People are now speaking up. Yeah, I think so. And we're seeing a lot more um, historical uh, allegations coming forward. So people who are saying, you know, I was sexually assaulted years ago, right? Now they're coming forward and there's no statute of limitations for that, um, which can be problematic. Uh, But we're also seeing it happen more in um, youth communities as well. So youth who are charged with sexual assault, where that used to be a pretty rare instance, I'm seeing it more and more often. So out of your portfolio of clients, uh, what percentage is impairment versus the other bases? Uh, 50%, 60%? Yeah, I think that impaired driving still does comprise, um, I would say, at least half of my practice, for sure. Uh, But since going out on my own and founding my own law firm, I have diversified quite a bit more. And I do have, um, you know, all kinds of different criminal matters that I deal with. Now, somebody who's been charged with a um, a criminal offense, uh, whether it be impaired driving or assault or whatever, do you work on pardons, uh, uh, that part of the equation as well? Yep, we do. Um, So I actually don't personally do the pardons, but I have a lawyer that does work for me and they do it. So it's something that's available at my law firm if someone's interested in discussing that. Um, It's something we can help with. Okay. Now, I want to talk about texting. Yeah. And textalizers. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's talk about texting because often at this traffic light, I look over and the guy or the girl in the car beside me is on the phone texting or, or, or checking emails or checking whatever. Um, and then I also, this morning, I was driving in to, into downtown Vancouver and the woman beside me was putting on makeup. Oh, yeah. And uh, which I find interesting. And people are eating hamburgers and hot dogs and mm-hmm. uh, drinking coffee. The textilizer is a lot, as I understand it, allows police to go in and check your cell phones. Yeah. Yeah, this is a new device that I guess has been kind of being thrown around as a potential tool that police officers here in this country might be able to use. It's some kind of a scanning device or app that would basically allow the officer to see if the person had been recently texting or calling or using their phone. Um, It's, in my view, really, really problematic because we don't exactly know how it works or what the officer's accessing, where they're storing that data, where they're keeping it what they're going to do with it. So, you know, where we live in a world now where people are keeping almost everything on their phones, Mm. right? And somebody like myself who has a lot of sensitive client information on their phone, I certainly wouldn't want a police officer accessing that during a traffic stop without a warrant. Yeah, no, that would make sense. Yeah. So how does this work? You're driving along and the lights flash behind you, you're pulled over and they do they actually take your cell phone and they attach that to this textilizer machine? I really have no idea how it how it would actually work in terms of the nuts and bolts at the roadside. Um, it's being marketed as a device that would forensically allow an officer immediate access to what was going on with that phone. So I don't know exactly how it works and that's one of my major concerns with it as well. Now, I was driving downtown the other day, actually it was a couple of months ago now, time flies Uh, and a police officer was just standing on the side of the road I have a convertible and he looked at my car and he saw that my cell phone was sitting on the seat beside me I wasn't Mm -hmm. touching it whatever it was just sitting on the seat beside me it was plugged in it was charging Mm -hmm. and he leaned into my car I was at a stoplight he leaned in my car and said you know what you'd be best to do is put that cell phone in the trunk of your car in the trunk, yeah. Okay, yep. that, well, there's no charting for yeah. my trunk of my car. But is that, is that, you should, uh, help me out here. Should, should, I wasn't touching my phone, I was just mm-hmm. sitting on the seat beside me. Mm-hmm. What's What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's all kinds of thoughts about that out there. Um, there's actually two cases that came from uh, our provincial courts on this issue, and they were in um, contradiction of one another. One of them said, yeah, it's okay to have your phone loose in your vehicle. Another one said, uh, no, it's not. It needs to be secured or mounted or you know, in a designated area like a glove compartment. Um, but there has been some development on this recently, and it seems that it's okay for it to be in your vehicle so long as you're not an L or an N driver, so you have a full class five license, it's okay for it to kind of be loose in your vehicle, so long as you're not physically touching it. Um, but still, as a best matter of practice to avoid you know, officers doing things like that, peering into your vehicle, maybe giving you a ticket that's not appropriate, then you have to have the headache of calling a lawyer maybe, you know, disputing it, going to court, it's not fun. Um, even if you're successful, it's usually not fun. Uh, so to avoid that, I would say just put the phone out of view. Yeah. Yeah. Well, put it in an attache case, put it in a, in a coat pocket or whatever, yeah. or in the trunk or uh, the glove compartment. But I understand, but the other reality is, is uh, distracted driving does cause a lot of accidents. Mm-hmm. Rear renders, uh, not so serious, but also so have serious fatal crashes too. Oh, yeah. And you get involved with those cases as well? I do, yes. Yep. And I mean, the 
uh, epidemic of texting and driving has been a real problem. Um, and it does cause a lot of accidents as you've identified. And, you know, it's definitely not a safe practice to engage in. And it's still shocking to me how often I have clients saying, yeah, you know, other people shouldn't be doing it, but I'm really good at, you know, multitasking and I'm good at my phone and I'm good at this. So it's okay for me. And yeah, it's just, it's this attitude around texting and driving. I think we're also addicted to our cell phones. Yeah, that, we are. Yeah. Very much so. It's yeah. part of it. And we had a social function in our house yesterday and a woman drove away and within about 10 minutes, she came running back said, I don't have my phone. And it's like she, she really lost something really valuable. And it, oh, yeah, yeah. She just left it at her place. And, but it is part of our lives. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other things I find curious, though, was that car manufacturers aren't really playing ball with this trend because you buy a modern car, like a Tesla, mm -hmm. it's got this big computer screen right there. Mm -hmm. And you can do everything on that screen. Yep. And it to me, that promotes distracted driving because yep. you've got the screen, big screen, it tells you all sorts of stuff, and you're pushing buttons on it. Yep. Maybe you're not looking down anymore, but yeah, it's I mean, right there. yeah, I was driving um, from Surrey Courthouse this morning to my office, and I was using my, you know, completely legal, hands-free system in my vehicle uh, that's, again, built into my vehicle, and they encourage you to use it. It's set up through your iPhone. It's like an iSystem that now is in these vehicles. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I was distracted by <laughs> touching all the buttons and trying to figure out how to call somebody and do it all hands free. But still, you know, you are engaging with that. So it does take your attention off the road. Yeah. All right. Another topic, hate speech. Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are, are you involved? Where is that whole thing going? It's a, it's Just a roll criminal, right it's a, into that. It's a criminal <laughs> offense. Um, you're involved with it. Yeah, so it's a criminal offense to um, promote or incite, you know, hatred or genocide. Um, so it's a pretty high threshold, actually, for it. Um, I haven't ever had a client charged with it. It's pretty rare. Um, you know, it comes around once in a blue moon, unfortunately, and I wish that it didn't. But it, it does happen, and it is a part of our criminal code, yeah, for sure. Has there been an increase in hate crimes in the last five, ten years? Well, Statistics Canada says so, and I think that there probably has been. Um, we're definitely seeing more instances of, you know, this type of uh, anti-Semitic, particularly in, in Canada, and anti-Muslim, um, Islamophobic uh, types of comments and things like that being made. Uh, here in the Lower Mainland, of course, we're seeing a lot of, you know, anti-Asian uh, stigmas and, and discriminatory speech as well. So it's certainly disheartening, it's repugnant, it's something that shouldn't be happening, but unfortunately it is, and people all of a sudden seem more emboldened to put it out there. I don't know why. Is it because certain political cultures break that? <laughs> I would argue yes, uh, certainly. Um, I think that it's no coincidence that we've seen a rise in this type of behavior following uh, the election of Trump in the U.S. Um, and uh, all of the things that he says, which, you know, lots of those things are not much better than the things that are being captured on video around the Lower Mainland. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you because it all seemed to, he seemed to be the genesis of an, of an uptick in this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But if you take hate crime and the growth in that, plus the increase in domestic violence or the reporting of it, maybe it's not an increase, maybe it's just the reporting of it, it doesn't bode well for us as a society. No. <laughs> it's not a really friendly place that 
we're heading towards? No, definitely not. Um, you know, most of the news is depressing, and I think that people have been saying that for, well, my entire life, for sure. I remember being a child and my parents complaining about the news being depressing. Um, but, you know, we have to continue to forge forward and find ways to deal with these issues um, and to deal with them in a responsible manner and in a way that allows us to keep on keeping on. Yeah keep on moving. Now, I want to ask you a, a personal question. You're the chair of the board of directors of PACE, yeah. which is a civil rights and a, a social action group. Uh, talk to me about that and how did it come to be that you've been on this board for eight years and oh, on this organization? Eight, it, it was eight years? It's and two 10 months. now, I think, 10 or now. maybe 11 now. Yeah, it's okay. been a really long time. I, um, I don't uh, update um, my information on the internet as often as I should. Um, but yeah, because I Because you don't want to be caught for dra- <laughs> distracted driving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I um, actually started with PACE when I was an article student and I started with them because... Was this at University of Calgary? No, this was when I was articling to become a lawyer. So here, yeah, so after I'd finished all my my education and I was, you know, in office kind of training to actually be a lawyer, uh, I was approached by another lawyer named Karen Mershke, and she's still a practicing member of the Vancouver Bar as well. Uh, But she approached me and said, hey, I'm on this board um, of this organization in the downtown east side, and I think you might be interested Um, because I have a background in women's studies and so uh, she knew that about me somehow and so she asked if I wanted to start volunteering there and I said sure I'll come to a meeting and yeah it's been 10 or 11 years now and now I'm the board chair so I just never left. (laughs) Okay so what exactly does it do? So Pace Society um, provides all kinds of low barrier frontline support services for people who are engaged in sex work. So sex workers, indoor, outdoor, uh, throughout the Lower Mainland, anybody who needs kind of anything, any self-identified need that they have, they can come to PACE Society and we will try our very best to provide it. So did PACE come about as a result of a specific incident or an event? Um, It was actually a founder uh, many, many years ago uh, who Uh, saw a need basically in the community for support services specifically tailored to sex workers and um, she founded the organization and we still have a board member uh, Ellen Weeb who is on our board today Um, and her favorite thing to say at board meetings you know when a new member comes is that she's been on the board since there was a board so she remembers founding this organization in this um, woman's living room you know 20 plus years ago Uh, and it's going stronger than ever before. Okay so help me out here what's your position on um, how do we move this dial forward to make it safe for people who work in this industry? Well we should definitely be working towards decriminalization um, Particularly I don't since we've decriminalized, you know, marijuana is now legal. Yeah. Why can't the world's oldest profession be legal? Yes, definitely. There's been, I think the two oldest professions, of course, are lawyers and sex workers. <laughs> lawyers go back that far? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, we do. We've been around <clears throat> forever as well. <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, it's really important to make sure that sex workers uh, are protected and that they're safe. And the only way we can do that is if there are no, you know, criminal laws and no stigma around doing this type of work. Um, It is work, uh, just the way that anything else is work, and I think it's very important for us to recognize that as a community. And criminalizing particular behaviors on moral ground doesn't work. 
So, you know, it just makes things worse for people. And that's certainly the case when it comes to sex work. So how far away are we from getting that legalization or decriminalization? You know, I really, really wanted to see Trudeau come out and say something about this in the past election cycle, uh, but he hasn't. What's holding him back? What do you think? I think that, you know, he's... I think that, well, this was a difficult election for him, I think. I think that he kind of recognized that he was... You know, hanging on. He was in survival mode. Yeah. So I don't think he wanted to get too risque. And whenever we bring up sex work, I think people get their backs up because it does come with all of these assumptions about what it that is or what that looks like. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think he was just trying to play it safe. But I would like to see this Liberal government take this on as a serious issue. I think that it needs to be revisited because the reforms that happened about 10 years ago now uh, that um, uh, changed the criminal law from stigmatizing or criminalizing the sex worker to now criminalizing the purchaser of sex um, haven't really done anything to remedy the problems, right? So uh, there's still so much stigma and people are just ultimately unsafe. Yeah. So you raise money how for PACE? All kinds of ways. <laughs> if fundraisers <laughs> coming up, any ways, you can write a check to PACE. Oh, yeah. You can definitely write a check to PACE. Uh, you, you have a website, which is? Yeah, it's uh, pacesociety.org, I believe. Um, it is, if you just Google PACE Society Vancouver, you'll find it. Um, and we certainly accept donations year-round, one-time or ongoing. Um, and we also accept, um, you know, items for donation. So if people have... Uh, items that they want to get rid of, surplus items if you're a business owner, uh, or if, you know, you just go clean out your closet, you have a bunch of nice, you know, lightly used clothes and things like that. I'm sure they don't want my clothes, but... (laughs) (laughs) They might, yeah. We actually have a lot of male-bodied sex workers that access our services. Yeah, so that's one of the things we can destigmatize. You know, that's interesting. We always think of sex workers, we always think of the female gender, but there are males in the sex work trade. Certainly, and there's lots of trans people and non-binary people. Um, so that is something that's, I think, really important to recognize, that it's not just you know women or self-identified women that are in sex work, but all types of folks are out there. Now, drill down on that. If I, if I clean up my closet this weekend, what's well, going to happen before New Year's, because I always do it before New Year's, you know, start the New Year's a little fresh. Where do I take the clothes? Well, you, to can, your office? <laughs> you can take it to my office. I can bring it there. I go to Pace at least... Uh, once a month. Where's Pace located? It's located on Hastings. I don't have the exact address on East hands. Hastings? Yeah. Uh, it's right across the street from Purebred, if you've oh, been yeah. there. Yeah. Lots of good treats there. Oh, and gosh. <laughs> I, I feel, every time I go in there, I feel the calories automatically coming on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hastings Street. Drop them off there. And it's uh, and apart from clothing, what else are you looking for? Oh, my gosh. Like, we'll take anything, really. We've had people donate furniture, um, you know, uh, any type of um, thing to do with hygiene, the toothbrushes, toothpaste. Unused toothbrushes. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. We want those stuff. unused. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, furniture, what are they doing with the furniture? Uh, put them in the apartments? That sort of thing? Well, we have a huge drop-in space at Pace, okay. um, and we hold all kinds of um, events there, and we do all kinds of things in terms of services. So uh, we often need new furniture because we operate okay. on a shoestring budget. So those types of things are really, really appreciated. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll take almost anything. We usually don't turn much away. <laughs> so uh, in terms of Pace, how does it work? A, a person who's a, a sex trade worker mm-hmm. uh, calls you or drops in and says, I have a problem. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how it basically works. Yeah. And you do counseling. 
Yeah. And do you counsel them in terms of not just their immediate problem? Do you try and counsel them to get to a safer place? Or, and I suspect that when they need help, they need um, help in terms of uh, drugs. They need help in terms of health, <laughs> and they need help in terms. Of, uh, they need help in terms of safety and security. Mm-hmm because I gather we still have the bad guys out there, the pimps and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all kinds of things. So one of the things that makes PACE really unique is that we are low to no barrier. So some organizations that offer services to sex workers offer them on conditions, right? The condition that say you're clean and sober or that you are going to exit the sex trade. Um, We don't do any of that. So whatever a person needs or self-identifies in terms of their wants, um, we will meet them there. So we do all kinds of things. We do do counseling. We'll also do um, uh, escorts. So we'll actually take people to, say, court if they need to go to court or if they need to go to a doctor's appointment or to the hospital, things like that in order to help them feel safe. We do community outreach. So we'll go out and we'll, you know, bring, say, um, clean supplies um, and and water and things like that to folks who are working on the street. Um, And they can access, you know, donations. They need clothing pair of shoes that fits them they can take it you know uh and community events for sex workers as well we have all kinds of different um community events we have meetups so there's weekly uh, circles for people so that they can network and uh, make connections in the community so that they're you know not working in isolation and they can share information and just socialize it's important Now, in the, Canadian, the American media and the British media now have been co- providing a lot of coverage in particular about the Epstein affair and the, uh, um, and the involvement of uh, uh, the, Roy, the prince uh, with an underage girl uh, who was uh, a sex worker, underage. Do you get involved in those sort of scenarios as well? Somebody coming into you saying, I was 16, 17 years of age and I got uh, coerced into this business um, and I have a friend whose daughter was held and working as a sex worker uh, underage. And do you get involved in those cries for help? So PACE probably wouldn't be the appropriate venue for that. Of course, we would provide support for somebody and probably point them to the right um, resources in the community to, to do that. But, um, you know, if somebody's involved or is the victim of, of sex trafficking and human trafficking, uh, certainly they should talk to the police, right? Yeah. Um, we deal with uh, sex workers who are in it voluntarily. They want to be there most of the time, um, and they do view sex work as work and a legitimate form of work. So not people who are being human trafficked. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever sleep? Uh, yeah, I try to sleep uh, a lot, actually. Usually if I'm not working, I'm sleeping. I don't do much else. Between pace, <laughs> your law practice, in terms of the various facets, you must be one busy person. I, yeah, definitely, yes, I am. Huh. Yep. Well, thank you very much for coming on uh, License to Chill. Yeah. Uh, again, it's Sarah Lehman. Her office is uh, her specialization uh, in her practice is um, uh, impaired driving, criminal law, and, uh, and her office is located in downtown Vancouver. Highly recommend anybody who over the holiday season or whenever has an issue, uh, give her a call. Um, and uh, it's uh, Sarah Lehman Law Group. Yeah, and I can give my phone number if sure. they want. What's your phone it's number? available all the time. So it's 604-900-9211. 
and that's the phone is right there on your desk. All the time. But you never have in your hand when you're driving. Never. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. You've been listening to License to Chill with your host, Bert Hick. This podcast is recorded live at Studio 710 in downtown Vancouver and produced by Jade Maple. For more information, check out risingtideconsultants.ca.